Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 16 of Edward I by Thomas Frederick Tout. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 11 the years of crisis, 1293 to 1297, part two. At last, Edward was able to begin his campaign. A goodly host followed the English king over the border. Antony Beck, the warlike bishop of Durham, called away from foreign diplomacy by the danger to which his palatinate was exposed, attended Edward's camp with a train of 500 horsemen and 1,500 foot. The sacred banner of St. John of Beverly was displayed at the head of the invading army. On the 30th of March, 1296, the great commercial town of Berwick was captured by a sudden and ill-planned but vigorous and persistent assault. A Scottish herald now brought to Edward King John's renunciation of his plighted homage. The false fool, cried Edward, if he will not come to us, we will go to him. Reckless of the havoc which a Scottish invasion of Upper Tyndale was causing to his rear, the king bade his troops press forward. The Scots gathered to withstand the invaders on the heights that surround Dunbar but on the English approach they foolishly left their strong position and marched down into the plain, just as the covenanting army in 1650 delivered themselves in the same way into the hands of Cromwell. On the 27th of April, the van of the English host under Earl Warren fell upon them in their unfavorable quarters and easily scattered them. Next day, Dunbar opened its gates to Edward. The rest of the campaign was but a military promenade. Edinburgh surrendered on the 14th of June. St. John's Day was celebrated within the walls of conquered Perth. On the 10th July, King John appeared before the Bishop of Durham at Brechen and surrendered his person and his kingdom to the English king bewailing the errors into which he had fallen through evil counsel and our own simplicity. Edward now pushed on northwards to Aberdeen, whence he marched to the furthermost extremity of the lowlands at Banff and Elgin. Before the end of August, Edward was back at Berwick. He brought with him the mysterious stone from Schoon Abbey, seated upon which the Scottish kings had been wont to be crowned. At Berwick he held a parliament, 
where those of the Scottish magnates who had not already made their submission vied with each other in performing homage to the conqueror. Few estates were forfeited, no lives were threatened, and no attempt was made to interfere with the ancient laws of the land. The bloodless conquest gave Edward little opportunity of showing his generalship. His fixed resolve to leave things alone in the conquered land was the best proof of his statesmanship. It was a triumph of the most brilliant and unexpected sort. But what probably best pleased Edward at the moment was that his Scottish conquest at last set him free to try conclusions in person with the hated king of the French. After appointing English officers to rule the Scots, Edward returned to the south, resolved that the forthcoming year should settle the affairs of the continent if it lay in mortal power to bring matters to a conclusion. Despite the fatigues of the campaign, Edward allowed himself but little rest. Further supplies were necessary if the king's twice-deferred expedition to France were to be a success in 1297. In November 1296, Edward gathered together a parliament at Bury St. Edmunds and requested large subsidies. The laity made their grant, but the clergy asked for delay that they might deliberate further on the matter. Their debates were long and stormy. The bishops urged upon the priests their obligations as loyal subjects and honorable men. The dignitaries expatiated upon the danger of French invasion. But the proctors of the inferior clergy declared that the purses of the poor parish priests had been drained dry by Edward's previous exactions, and their practical objections to pay anything more were supplemented by the theoretical difficulty which the abbots and priors, the monks were always the strongest papalists, found in the recent action of the Pope. Boniface the Eighth who had ascended the papal throne in 1294, had issued early in 1296 his famous bull Clericus Laicos, forbidding clerks to pay taxes to the temporal authority. Archbishop Winchelsea was himself strongly inclined to the view upheld by the monks but he persuaded the impatient Edward to allow the question to be postponed until January 1297, when a clerical synod was summoned by the Archbishop to St. Paul's in London to further consider the matter. Edward filled up the weary delay by a pilgrimage to Our Lady of Walsingham. The clerical assembly duly met, and after long debates, all orders of the clergy united in a point-blank refusal to help the king. Their obligations to Rome had prevailed over their duty to England. Edward was furious with the clergy. Since you do not observe, he said, the homage and fealty which you have sworn to me, I too will not be bound to you in anything. He ordered that no clerk should be allowed to sue in the king's courts, and that such of the church's lands as were held by ordinary lay tenures should be taken into the king's hands. 
if any layman met a monk or clerk riding a better horse than he had himself it was declared lawful for him to appropriate it for his own uses the whole clerical estate was put out of the law tidings of a severe defeat of the english in gascony had come opportunely to hand in their rage the clergy saw in the disaster to our army the finger of an avenging providence but edward was not so easily turned from his purpose archbishop winchelsea hurried to the king's court to seek to mitigate his sovereign's wrath on his way the king's officers seized the horses ridden by himself and his followers winchelsea got to court as best he could and found that his intercession was of no avail edward gave out that unless the clergy submitted by easter he would confiscate the whole of their lands another church synod met where love of country and love of gain fear of the king and fear of the pope tore asunder the whole order in hopeless divisions at last winchelsea was forced to adopt a middle course he advised each clerk to follow his own conscience and announced that no ecclesiastical penalty would follow upon submission to the royal will most clerks now gladly paid their share of taxation and were received back into the king's protection winchelsea held out obstinately and edward took possession of all his lands the king had thus gained a substantial victory but only after great friction and a considerable waste of precious months he never forgave winchelsea for forcing the conflict upon him and laying clear to all men how divided was the allegiance of the clergy between the pope and the king winchelsea's unpatriotic conduct could have only become successful through the real exhaustion of the taxpayers and the widespread ill-will which edward's spirited foreign policy had excited there was no such strong national animosity between france and england as that intense feeling which in the succeeding century made it an easy task for edward's grandson to exact abundant supplies to carry on a war of aggression in france the laity silently shared in the dislike expressed by the clergy to make edward further advances and just as the dispute with the clerks was approaching settlement a new difficulty raised by the nobility interposed a further obstacle to edward's cherished plans in february twelve ninety seven edward had assembled a parliament of nobles at salisbury he did not summon the clergy as they were still regarded as outlaws and he did not convoke the third estate as the commons had already made their offering at bury edward laid before the nobles a plan of campaign against the french he proposed to go in person to flanders in the hope of reviving the energy of the confederate princes while he requested the leading earls to go to gascony where little but bayonne now remained in english hands since the death of gilbert of gloucester in twelve ninety five the leadership of the english baronage had passed to roger bigod earl of norfolk and earl marshal and humphrey of bouin 
Earl of Hereford and High Constable. Both earls refused to go to Gascony on the ground that they were bound by their offices as marshal and constable to attend the king in person. Willingly, said the earl marshal, will I go with thee, O king, and fight before thee in the first line of battle as I am bound by hereditary duty. Thou shalt also go along with the others without me, was Edward's answer. This I am not bound to do, replied the marshal, nor do I intend, my lord, to serve abroad save with thee. Edward burst into a passion. By God, Sir Earl, he exclaimed, you shall either go or hang. By that same oath, Sir King, answered the marshal, I will neither go nor hang. The Parliament broke up in disorder. The two earls took arms, and a band of fifteen hundred well-trained horsemen soon gathered together under their banners. Edward was thus farther off his goal than ever. Despairing of regular grants, he had laid violent hands upon his subjects' goods and had appropriated all the vast stores of wool and hides which in those days were the only commodities largely produced in England for export. But the followers of the two earls forbade the king's ministers seizing the wool and hides upon their lands and bade them be gone under pain of death or mutilation. Moreover, the townsfolk now began to throw in their lot with the rebellious barons. Nevertheless, Edward's fierce will still held out against every obstacle. Inflexible in his great purpose, he ordered a general military levy to assemble at London early in July. But he so worded the writs that it might seem that the military tenants attended, not because bound to appear by reason of their legal obligations, but as a favor at the special request of the king. Availing themselves of this pretext, the earls of Norfolk and Hereford condescended to appear. With reflection came calmer counsels on both sides. Edward appointed other nobles to execute the offices of marshal and constable, and the two earls went back to their estates. The king also promised to give pay to all his tenants who served in Flanders, and restored the temporalities of Archbishop Winchelsea and the recalcitrant clergy. On the 14th of July, a formal reconciliation between the king and the archbishop was brought about in the presence of the king's son, many bishops and barons, and a great multitude of people outside the great hall at Westminster. For your sakes, declared Edward to his people, I am going to meet danger. If I return, receive me, as you have been wont to do, and I will give you back all that I have taken from you. If I die, here is my son, take him as your king. Winchelsea burst into tears. The people declared their fidelity with uplifted hands, but the touching scene was no sign of hearty reconciliation. The two earls still held aloof, the clergy held long and acrimonious debates as to the precise conditions of their reconciliation, and the Scots burst out into open revolt. The baronial leaders would be content with nothing less than complete submission to their demands, and Edward, after struggling against them for a month longer, 
resolved to go to Flanders and let English affairs take what course they might. On the eve of his departure, he wrote a frank and high-spirited letter to his people, justifying his violent action by his extreme necessity. The heavy taxes and the illegal exactions were as painful to him as to his subjects. He did not impose them to buy lands or tenements or castles or towns for himself, but for the defense of the whole commonwealth against foreign enemies. The whole tone of the letter brings out clearly how Edward valued the opinion of his subjects. Common dangers were still, as in 1295, to be met by common action. The month of August was nearly over when Edward at last went to New Winchelsea to take ship for Flanders. A few days before his embarkation, he had narrowly escaped death from a horse accident. He was riding along the earthen rampart, which then protected the side of the town near the harbor, and which, crowning the brow of a steep hill that sank rapidly toward the sea, gave him an admirable view of his assembled ships. Suddenly the king's horse took fright at the whir of the sails of a windmill carried round rapidly by a brisk breeze. The animal refused to stir a step farther, and as Edward plied whip and spur to urge it on, it slipped from the earthen rampart and fell into the road many feet beneath, which led down in steep zigzags from the town to the harbor. Everybody thought that the king was killed, but the road was soft from recent rain, and the horse miraculously fell on his feet, so that Edward, no worse for his fall, rode back into the town amidst the rejoicings of the townsfolk and soldiers. He soon afterwards crossed over to Flanders. No sooner was the king gone abroad than the two earls united with the archbishop in formulating their grievances and demanding redress. On the very day of Edward's departure, the two earls appeared before the barons of the exchequer and forbade the collection of the aid until the charters of liberties had been confirmed. The regency, at the head of which was the king's son Edward, had neither the means nor the spirit to resist their demands. In a tumultuary and incomplete parliament, which assembled in October, the regents reissued Magna Carta and the Charter of the Forests with additional articles of the utmost importance. By them the recent unlawful aids were utterly renounced, and it was promised that no such taxes should henceforth be levied save by the common consent of the realm and to the common profit thereof. Next month, Edward himself ratified his son's act at Ghent. The long constitutional crisis thus ended for the moment in the complete submission of the king. The confirmation of the charters of 1297 is one of the turning points in our constitutional history. It sums up the whole advance won by the people in the long struggle that had raged with but little cessation since the first submission of John to the popular will upon the field of Runnymede. It stands in the closest relation to that development of the parliamentary system, which is among the chiefest glories of the reign of Edward. Edward had called into being the Parliament of the Three Estates. 
by his concessions in 1297 he invested the body that had first met in 1295 with the highest and choicest of its powers. It was the greatest triumph of the popular principle that the age witnessed, and the triumph became all the greater when it was won from so fierce and strong a king as Edward. But the politic submission of the king ended in a fashion the long crisis that had begun with the French king's attack on Gascony. Edward seemed now again set free to carry on his policy as a leader of the English nation. If the last years of his reign upon which we are now entering were less glorious than might have been anticipated, it is not because of his concession, but because he did not continue to act in the spirit of his concession. Because, while agreeing with his lips to the great principles of popular control and assent, which he himself had enunciated, he acted in his heart in a spirit opposed to them. End of section 16. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.